Nicolas Cage is probably one of our generation's definitive actors. Hello and welcome to Cage Fighting. I have started recording, haven't I? Yeah. <laughs> Great start. Try again. Staining. Hello and welcome to Cage Fighting. It's your main man, Andy Gillard, here. Welcome to 2021. Hope everyone's good out there. Hi everybody, Matt Guy here. Hope everybody is keeping well and having a good start to the year so far. Welcome to Lockdown 3, everyone. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> so yeah, Lockdown again. How are we holding up, gents? Are we all, are we all good? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it, I hate using this term, the new normal and everything, but you just adapt to it, don't you, really quickly. So at the moment, it's kind of like finding the joy in the things that you do enjoy and just throwing you two-footed at you know into it at the minute i think mm, absolutely Stu, i know obviously you've been <laughs> not been working for for some time how are you coping with everything mate? well two two months <laughs> jesus two months of doing nothing at all and getting paid for but this time to be fair it is a bit different because they have the homeschooling aspect of it is there so mm. Rather than before, where you could get it done within an hour, it's, they have they are like sending six, seven hours worth of stuff. So you do have to be right. kind of on the ball from half nine at the latest, really, to get it over and done with by normal time. But other than that, it's just it's second nature. Now. We just get up, think, well, let's not have a drink until the PM. <laughs> it's, it's all okay. <laughs> but yeah, it's you just just got to toddle along, eh? We and just <laughs> just ride it out. That's it. We'll, we'll get there in the end. Just it'd be nice to know when the end is going to be there. But obviously, anyone out there, if anyone is tr- struggling or anything, our DMs are always open. Just drop us a line. We're always happy to have a chat. So, I think we did the right thing starting with some comedy this year. Definitely needed something a little bit light-hearted. We've got Raising Arizona and Trapped in Paradise to discuss. When we were looking for a Christmas film to do, I did a, a quick scan of Nick Cage Christmas on Google and see what came up, and nothing came up. <laughs> but it turns out Trapped in Paradise is actually a Christmas film. But having seen this, I'm not massively surprised why it wasn't mentioned in any of the lists. And to make matters worse, I realised partway through, I've seen this film, I saw it about 25 years ago, and I'd completely blanked on it. I'd forgotten everything about it. That's like the power of the mind, you know, it's protecting you from, you know, regressing, regressing memories, you see. Yeah. As soon as the, you know, the bit where the, where Dana Carvey clocks the typing, that bit, all of a sudden, everything just flashed back to me. I'm like, oh, I've seen this film. That is not a good sign. Yeah, I, I never, like we said before, I'd never heard of it. So it was, I think within... Two minutes, and the, there's a Santa there, and the Salvation Army bucket, and I, I think she said, "This is a Christmas film. We can't. Can we just do this next year?" <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I'd already seen it, and I had absolutely no interest in watching it again. As you so, find yeah, out, we're going to start with uh, <laughs> we're going to start with Trapped in Paradise from 1994. 
20th Century Fox would like you to meet the Furpo family. Dave. Once released from this prison, I, much like my reptilian brother, the pterodactyl, shall fly high above my problems. Alvin. Excuse me. Well, the sign says take a pen, not take all the pens. <laughs> Bill. Look at that abandoned car. <laughs> it's my car. Oh. Their ma. Beautiful dreamer. Hey, Edna, how would you like to ride your trunk in a car? Edna, Edna, are we sleeping together? I think not. One big temptation. Forget it. Forget what? There's no money in the vault. Yeah, what have we here? $275,000. One brilliant plan. Oh, this is the robbery! Who's got the key? Raise your hand. So the film begins setting out the three main characters. Nick Cage, he finds a wallet in the street, thinks about stealing it, but then returns it to its owner before going to confession for being tempted and knowing that he could be easily led astray. Cage's brothers are in prison and they're played by Dana Carvey, who is a klepto, and John Lovitz, who is a compulsive liar. The brothers manage to get early release and get passed into Cage's care. Immediately, they try to rob a place. Cage runs them down and stops them. He gets interrupted by a local police officer, to whom Cage then turns around and screams at him that he's a detective <laughs> and he's got the DA up his arse and those pencil pushers in City Hall just don't understand. <laughs> when the policeman goes, Cage rescues his brothers away. The problem with that is they haven't established anything about Nick Cage. We don't know if he's actually a cop or not. So that scene means absolutely nothing to us as a, an audience at this point. So I didn't get anything out of it. I didn't think it was funny because I thought, well, maybe maybe he is a cop. I just don't know. Um, I'd assumed he wasn't a cop by this point, but I didn't think... Uh, I thought it was strange because he's there, like, the, the speed in which he goes from being conscious about stealing a wallet to impersonating a police officer is incredibly <laughs> quick. Like, his moral compass... He's yeah. like incredibly loose. <laughs> um, and so I, I did find that a bit quite funny, though, to be fair. And the, the film started semi-promising for me in terms of, oh, this could be a fun watch. Could be a fun watch. <laughs> I mean, I was... At that point, when he, as soon as, I mean, you, you could see that he was just flashing whatever that thing was in his pocket at him. It, it didn't even look like a plastic badge. It was just... <laughs> it was like a, some kind of passport or something, but... From the, you know, I was the same, but I had no clue what was going on. But mm. as it, as it had already established itself as a Christmas film, I gave it a pass straight away. I thought, well, <laughs> this is going to be stupid. <laughs> so let's just let's just get along for the ride, kind of thing. But I mean, I, I added a couple of giggles to myself. But let's just get it out of the way. Dana Carvey's voice in this pissed me off from the very yeah. start. And because I, yeah. I, I thought, who this can't be like a a police because it never clicked who. Who Dana Covey was, and then stupidly, I never even thought. Um, I don't want even concentrating at the titles or anything like that. So <laughs> I thought, is this a kind of is this a police academy situation where he's actually retarded, and this is his actual yeah. voice? And then after ten minutes, I had to, I'd bowed down and did what I never do and looked at IMDb to see who it was. I thought, oh shit, yeah, he's just putting it on. But why? Mm. Why? Yeah. Why put a voice on like that? It's just. Every time he was on screen, it irritated me. Yeah. 
And this is jumping ahead to what I was going to discuss, like in the good, the bad and the crazy, but <laughs> fuck it. Let's get into it now. Is there an actor who is more of a one-hit wonder than Dana Carvey? Like he knocked it out of the park with Garth in Wayne's World, just smashed it. Everything he's done since has been absolute dog shit. He has been awful. He's not a funny guy at all. I just don't understand how he's managed to, like, with the, especially the late uh, late 90s to maybe early aughts, he was in a run of films that were just all terrible. I don't know if, have either of you seen um, Master of Disguise 2002? No. no. I was going to say, now, to be fair. Yeah, I was going to say, what films has he been in? Because I can't think, I mean, that was one of the things where I didn't recognise him, obviously, because... That's one of the hmm. few that I have seen him in, but I've I've seen him on like when he's been on like chat shows and stuff, and when he's just been himself and doing impressions, he's funny. But hmm. doing things like this, I thought, well, there's a reason why I don't recognise him. <laughs> Through I felt throughout this period of his career, this was him. This was he was always doing this really silly, mousy voice. Every character was a giggling, guffawing buffoon. <laughs> he was just so one note, and that one note did not strike a chord with me at all. But yet, yeah, check out Master of Disguise. It might be the worst film I've ever seen. <laughs> um, he plays a character called Pistachio Disguise. <laughs> and and that's See, the that's... level of the jokes in it. Like it's fucking appalling. See, that's that's it. That automatically sounds like my kind of thing. Though. <laughs> <laughs> well, have you ever seen the Love Guru, which obviously has got his old partner um, Mike Myers in? It's Is... that level yeah, of comedy, like mm. really teeth pulling bullshit. It's it's terrible. Fun so fact: we... He appears with Billy Crystal as a mime in This Is Spinal Tap. Which, oh, wow. which gives him a 0.1% point in his favour, I suppose. But it's about like a 30-second roll, if that, to be fair. <laughs> so, yeah, I can't so even picture him in it, to be honest. Clean slate, road to Wellville, the shot, just shoot me, late line, little Nicky. I don't remember him in that. No, None of these films, basically I've the never same seen character. them. Yeah. Jack Lucky and, you. Uh, Jack and Jill. <laughs> obviously, that's got Sandler in, so obviously that's a no. Oh, I haven't watched that one. I've heard all about it, and that was enough for oh, me. There you go. Secret Life of Pets as Pop's voice, which <laughs> makes some kind of mm. sense. Yeah, well, but I that, suppose he's a character that, that was twenty six like Saturday Night Live. Yeah, and that was 2016. So he yeah. didn't really do anything. He probably all right. Hmm. But yeah, I knew me. I knew as soon as I saw Dana Carvey doing that act again, I knew I was going to hate this film. <laughs> I, I just I knew because I knew he was going to just completely grind my gears throughout, and he, he he did massively. So once the cons are free of all the troubles, they go to visit their mother. Uh, they give her a letter which one of their cellmates gave them, asking them to visit his daughter who is out of state. Cage thinks they're full of shit. <coughs> The brothers basically kidnap Cage from his work as a maitre d'. Again, they've not established anything about Nick Cage at this point, and he's wearing a really bad-looking suit in a very posh-looking restaurant. So I just assumed he was trying to mug these old people, like he was just going to take their money and piss off. I never believed this was actually his job. It mm. didn't sit right with me. 90s, though. 90s suit. It was a terrible suit. 
Uh, Lovitz and Carvey decide they're taking Cage to Paradise. Uh, that's where they're going to go and visit the cellmate's daughter. They arrive and go to the nearest bank. Obviously, they are staking the joint out. Cage chokes when he sees how much money the bank holds and the lack of security. They immediately go to the local store and get what they need and go back to rob the bank. Should we... we um, <laughs> skipping over the horse scene. The horse scene comes a little bit later, doesn't it? Or is there another no, one? No, it's, it's, it's not it's thinking it about... straight into town. Looks like the yeah, first thing happens when they get into town, I think. And the, oh, I'd completely sorry. Carry on, she. I'd completely forgot about that bit. When they arrive in the the battered up car, and then they they um, accidentally run over the uh, the local sheriff's special son, <laughs> who's riding a horse for some reason. And I mean, this is where I, I I knew what kind of film it was at this moment. I thought, yeah, okay, mm. let's let's embrace it as much as we possibly can here. But it, it was just how he was when they said about. I, mean, I watched it like four days ago. I couldn't even remember the woman's name. Is it Sarah or something? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And he said, it's only, there's a Sarah who works in there. <laughs> well, do you know everyone in this town? And there's only one Sarah, and it's the mid 90s. I mean, come on. But <laughs> it was the whole, the whole scene when they went in the bank, and then that whole thing with her, and he sees it, and he does the weird, creepy cage thing again, where he just stares. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't. Um, it wasn't like lovey dovey or anything. It was a little <laughs> bit rapey. It was not. It was not pleasant, was it? <laughs> Again, though, he's like his his moral compass is swinging in the I'm I'm a tea leaf section now because all of a sudden he's just like, yes, I'm going to rob a bank. Whereas prior to this, for the fifteen minutes or so prior to this, he's been you know going to church and not wanting to take the money out of a wallet. And I just I, I didn't buy like this. Characters mm-hmm. changed all of a sudden, really, really quickly after being so vocal against his uh, his two criminal brothers. Yeah, it took absolutely no time at all. Like they didn't he even have to convince him; he was convincing them of mm. it almost. Strange you know, it was. It, was, it made no sense, and it just didn't sit right within the the narrative of the movie at all. I didn't think. No, because I mean, it, it's kind of it hints at like he's been one of their like they've done jobs together before. Mm-hmm. But then, at the same time, he kind of does the opposite as well, where he's like the, he's the good brother, and there there are two morons who just he just kind of shrugs his shoulders at him, kind of thing. And you never like which one's real. Mm. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, you, you never got a grasp of who his character was. As bad as Lovitz and Carvey are, you know who their characters are. They're consistent, at least. Yeah, I know that their arc does change who they become, but it's earned. Whereas Cage is isn't ever earned. I don't feel. Hmm. So we get some gags and silly bollocks as they try and <laughs> rob the bank because the bank manager isn't there. So they go out into the street to find him, and people just follow them. <laughs> no one tries to stop them. Like it's not even close to funny. Any of this stuff, it's just silly and not in a good way. Were they all all walking across the square to be to be hostage, hostages twice? Yeah, like it was just it was stupid. I get it's a comedy that you have to let certain things fly, but it's also set in the quote unquote real world, mm. and that just didn't make any sense. It's... No one was worried about these maniacs with shotguns. Yeah, it, I had the mispleasure of 
over this lockdown 2.0 have been a passenger to watching the Gilmore Girls from the start. So like, I'd be in the room, it'd be on, I'd leave the room, I'd come back to the room an hour later and it'll still be on. And it's the same kind of like sleepy little town, everybody knows everybody kind of show. And it's like the same. And I don't know if this is like um, a stereotypical thing of like small suburban towns that like everybody knows everybody and everybody will follow everybody. And there's one bank mm. for everybody. And I think they were just trying to paint that image, but it did it. It did it in a way you can do it better than, than that. You can do it in a way that's more believable and less. I mean, yeah, it's a comedy film. So you, you do give it a certain amount of leeway, but it was, um, when we talk about raising Arizona, they do a similar kind of thing there, but instantly do it better. Sleepy town, everybody yeah. knows everybody, but they could do it in a more nuanced way that doesn't that doesn't kind of not insult the viewer. That's a bit harsh, but you know you don't have to have a complete aneurysm to to enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, it's just stretching that um, that that disbelief a little bit too far. Mm. I don't know why, but I immediately thought of coming to America, mm. the scene with Samuel L. Jackson where he holds up the it's not McDonald's, is it? It's the the cheap, nasty McDonald's knockoff that they do. But you believe that the people in there are actually scared of him because he's a gun-wielding maniac. Mm. And it's a similar sort of comedy, except that's really good and this wasn't. So, I don't know. The scene cuts to the brothers' former prison. There's an inmate telling the story about a bank that's easy pickings in the town of Paradise. He finds out that the bank has been hit and realises that it was the brothers' He and some henchmen break out of prison and head straight for the brothers. <laughs> as easy as that. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, it was literally just one scene, then they're out. Okay, right. Brilliant. Well, it followed the whole, um, well, sticky bandits at that point in Homeland 2, where they just just escaped. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just apropos of nothing. <laughs> Back in Paradise, the brothers crash their car as they're trying to escape and they end up at the house of the bank's boss. The bank manager's family treats them to a change of clothes and cage I fucks their daughter once again. (laughs) Creepy bastard. (laughs) After a bit of shenanigans, the daughter tells Cage they need to leave. She's figured out that they're the ones who robbed the bank. Cage says he can't leave because he likes the people here now. He spent an evening in their company (laughs) and all of a sudden he wants to move to paradise. Like, what the bollocks is going on here? (laughs) (laughs) He then tries to kiss the daughter and she runs. Whilst the brothers are trying to escape, they get on a horse-drawn sleigh and end up on a frozen lake and the poor horse nearly dies. This was the only moment in this whole film that I actually felt anything at all, in any sense. (laughs) I actually felt quite sorry because... I don't want to see animals in distress and it wasn't a pleasant viewing at all at that point. It wasn't funny or anything. It just looked a little bit too unpleasant for my liking, to be perfectly honest. Mm. I, this was at the point for me where I, as much as I was like, I'd lost interest in the film anyway, and it was very much, mm. very much felt like I was trapped in the paradise that was the film. at this point the the turnaround to becoming like a heartwarming christmas film kind of started ish yeah you know the the it's a wonderful life part of the film um and so it kind of picked up from that point of view because the the christmas of 2020 has changed my life in a way 
in that I went in on this Christmas two footed and actually really enjoyed it for yes. as, as a Christmas. <laughs> so like I actually enjoyed the, the the heartwarming side of this film a little bit. So it started to it started to turn my cold black heart a little warmer. So disappointed in you, Matthew. <laughs> You'll be next year. Uh, it's not going to happen. Uh, the brothers make it to a diner where they decide to return the money. The mob catch up with them and force the brothers to confess to the bank manager that they stole the money, but they've actually donated it now, and they couldn't ah, because they couldn't get into the bank. Cage says they're not the people they were that morning. <laughs> it's not even been 24 hours and you've completely changed it. Like, at least give them a fucking weekend there for crying out loud. But no, 12 hours, that's enough. The police catch up to them at the bank manager's house. The bank manager says that these are good men and lies to protect them, even though they robbed the bank with fucking shotguns. What an absolute mess this film is. <laughs> it's a Christmas miracle, Andy. It's a Christmas miracle, I'll have you know. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> so the budget on this film is unavailable, but at this point, Cage, Lovitz and Carvey, they've all got decent names in acting, so I would be very surprised if this was less than 10 million. And from what I've read about it, this was like a tentpole Christmas movie. So I would have thought it would have a semi-decent budget, to be perfectly honest. The box office was $6 million. Like, I'm amazed it's even got that much, to be honest. It got $2 million on its opening weekend, which apparently was a disaster for a mid-90s Christmas film, and it never really recovered. No surprises there from me, to be perfectly honest. I think this is... if. I presume we've all watched the um, holiday movies that made us now on Netflix. Or is it is it the other one? Is it just the movies that made us about Home Alone? I think um, it's just the movies that made us on Home yeah. Alone, yeah. Yes, yeah. I've and they talk about one. then yeah. how it was it was cancelled because they don't think it was gonna be any good and what a ridiculous mistake that was. <laughs> yeah. But it was almost like if you look at I mean the they kind of hint at it in that where the amount of films chasing that Christmas dollar afterwards. Mm. And there was stuff in this. I mean, like I already said about Home Alone 2, the stuff in this, which was almost ripped from the Home Alone script, the, the stupid the stupid crooks, the bumbling police, and the mm. um, some kind of love story for no reason whatsoever that's been in other things as well, like planes, trains, and automobiles in the 80s. And there was... The same, it was almost... Christmas film of the nineties by numbers, and it kind of was in a way. Mm. Once you once you got into that part of that, like was a bit two thirds of the way through it, where it just like Matt said that it turned into a Christmas film. If the whole thing had been like that, it would have been ten times better because it it was acknowledging itself as being stupid. Then, but you had the whole mm. set, the whole it was. It should be the the title of this podcast really: two films bolted together, because <laughs> again it was, and. I mean, thankfully, I did watch it before the um, the Christmas cutoff point in January. So not when <laughs> not when this is going out. So I'll tough look for all you watching it now. But so it did kind of feel a little bit Christmassy to me. But I think if you once you take the Christmas part out of it, it's just wank. Because mm. <laughs> it's just not, it's not fun, is it? It's it's, it's not, not it's not even fun nonsense because it doesn't make any sense. A lot of it, like we've already yeah. hinted at, and 
it, it's so inconsistent and I, I think if you can if you at least give me a consistent story i'll be fine with it even if it's not good at least i can follow it through but this this was all over the place especially nick cage's character was just dreadful yeah and the, and the fact so that it, i found that very difficult to watch and it is only a day if it was like you said if it was a weekend or if it was a long weekend which would have over Christmas time, you could have said, oh, well, there's no trains or no buses or stuff. You could have made that a three-day thing, mm. which should have been made. I mean, how, how did the <laughs> the, um, the bad bank robbers escape from prison and get to paradise <laughs> in the same afternoon as seeing the reports on the telly? <laughs> and it's like simple things like that. I mean, I, we all know it by now that I, I love terrible films and comedies like this and I did give it a pass I mean I did I did enjoy it in some part but there was too much of it I mean I was even I was checking how long was left mm. oh. it just went oh, yeah it went on and on and on that. and how long was it not sure, that close on two hours isn't it yeah, yeah it was one hour 51 minutes top to tail that is a long old film that is to be honest especially it, one of this genre yeah and it still wasn't in let's say we, that we could develop characters and stuff but in this there was just nothing there was no real characters to develop. You'd have, you could have cut whole swathes of it out and made it better. Mm. That would have been a better idea, but no. Very annoying. So on IMDb, it's got a 6.0. Uh, the Rotten Tomatoes audience score is a 41%. The critic score is a 10%. <laughs> I think that speaks for itself, really. There are some five-star reviews on Amazon. Of course. Surprisingly, of course. <laughs> Angie Good Music. Uh, brilliant for a cold winter's afternoon when all you need is a bit of a laugh. This is an often overlooked Christmas comedy caper, but it encompasses all that is great about festive movies. Humour, hard luck stories and sugary romance. There was no sugary romance in this film for me <laughs> at no, all. No, not at all. Um, isn't it funny that like Amazon reviews are always massively off the mark, as if like <laughs> yeah. the majority of them are like reviewing them because the DVD came on time, <laughs> yeah. like, as opposed to like <laughs> actually the film itself. I mean, she was. It was that nice of a romance that she convinced a, a bank robber to. She's known for less than twenty four hours. To not get on the bus with his mom <laughs> and to live with her in paradise, knowing nothing about him whatsoever. <laughs> like she's only met him twice at that point as well for like five minutes at a time. Fucking ridiculous. The heart wants what the heart wants. Yeah, yeah. Cavstar says this was a fantastically funny film with lots of slapstick and great one-liners. It was also very heartwarming, but not in the usual smaltzy genre way. Loved it. I I can't remember a single one-liner in this film. There was nothing one-liner that wasn't the style of comedy he was trying for. There's one. There's one quote that I wrote down where he said, "There's a three-legged dog staring at me," and I did giggle at that because it's just so <laughs> it's just so ludicrous. But I found out later that that dog just lived in that village. <laughs> Oh right, okay. so they just cast the they dog. They just rocked up. They just cast the dog because it was funny because he only had three legs. <laughs> so that wasn't even Super. part of the script. Wasn't by design. Jeez. Obviously, the critics slaughtered it. There was only one review I could find that was not rotten, and that was Todd McCarthy from Variety. 
And by not rotten, he, to quote him, he says it was a serviceable family holiday attraction. <laughs> serviceable is as good as it gets for this mm. film. <laughs> Janet Maslin from the New York Times, it is a minor holiday miracle that this homey comedy barely elicits even a chuckle. Christopher Null from, from filmcritic.com, it is better than static and infomercials. That's about <laughs> the sum of it. But the final words has to go to Alex Keane from Trades, who said that it is horrible, terrible, unfunny, zero out of five. Where is this? Yeah. So, the good, the bad, and the crazy. I'll start. Um, good. Um, I've got nothing. I've genuinely <laughs> got nothing. <laughs> I've got nothing to say. The bad, I've already said. Dana Carvey. Like, in a film of shit, he was the worst thing about it. Absolutely terrible. Uh, the crazy, I have got some John Lovitz quotes. <clears throat> Well, I feel very fortunate to even be in movies at all, but I call this trapped in shit. (laughs) When talking about the director, George Gallo, he would say, I'm as good as Rob Reiner and Martin Scorsese. I would say to him, don't you think you should let other people say that? (laughs) He never let us see the script. He'd tell us we were going to rehearse, then scream, do whatever you want. And I just go, saying do whatever you want is not direction. Apparently, Lovitz and Carvey were then attached to starring Bad Boys, the Bad Boys with Will and Martin Short. Oh, uh, not Martin Short, sorry, Martin Lawrence, um, because that's a George Gallo script. Apparently, uh, Lovitz said that his script was terrible. So I think in the end, all they did was use his story and then just completely rescripted it. I could think of nothing worse than watching John Lovitz and Dana Carvey in Bad Boy. I mean, it might be the worst thing ever, or it might be the best thing ever. I, I don't quite know, but it's, Stu, what's your good, bad and crazy? I was going to say, I, I was sort of thinking about him when he said that they pretty much had to make it up as they were going along as well. Um, I mean, the, it was another. It was a, a surprise that it was it actually was a Christmas film. So, and it, it had to be then written to the... Uh, the 21st Christmas film I watched over November, December. So <laughs> that was uh, that was the, the crazy part. Because, I mean, the bad, we've already mentioned Dana Carvey, it was just annoying. Um, but just how ridiculous it was, and not in a good way. It just didn't make sense. Mm. And well, there was, the, I mean, the good, there was some some parts where I did, like, smile. I mean, I, I never laughed out loud once in the whole thing. And But there was, like, things where, like stupid things, like when he the, the drove off the bridge for, for no real reason at all into onto the frozen river. That was that was pretty good. And the three legged dog, as I've mentioned, and the Christmas jumpers, and there were some things that were just they were funny because they were so absurd. And I was yeah. in a good mood that day. But I watched Nine Lives of Christmas with Brendan Routh, which was a, a lifetime or one of them nonsense films mm. made for TV movie, and it was better than this. So that kind of says it all. And I mean, out of pure curiosity, I am going to watch it next Christmas just just to see what happens. If it if it's having all point, yeah, having decorations up in it, if that makes any difference at all, I'm I'll probably probably not really. But it just it's to the uh, it's a Christmas film that even I am going to say it's to the very bad side of it. So there's right. very much very much more bad than good. Wow. 
Matt, what's your good, bad, and crazy? For good, I find Lovitz really funny, to be honest. And I think he some of his delivery in the film was mm. quite good. So I, I I laughed out loud, like laughed legitimately out loud when he sees that the escaped convicts are on telly and he's in that, that family's house and he just starts singing. And then the mm. rest of the family started singing. I just think he's 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 <laughs> his delivery, his voice, he's like massively ex, you know, extenuated like New York accent in this as well. I just find him quite a fun like I think he he added he added more to the film than, than Cage in terms of like entertainment point of view. But the bad the bad about this film, it's it's so long where I felt like like nothing happens. It really like meandered along from from point to point. And I never really, I, I struggled to keep up with it. Not because it was a complicated film, just because my like my appetite to watch it just wasn't there. Because it just it just felt like it was going on and on and on. And I knew how long it was. And I just know that like, unless comedy is tip top, to extend it past ninety minutes is generally not a good thing. Um, and I just this just felt like that. It was just very long. You know, it's, it's that old adage of. How can someone say so much? How can someone talk so much but say so little? And that's what this film was, really. Um, from the crazy, and this is, we'll get go on to your question about Nick Cage as a good or bad actor, really. The very, very early stages out of some of the colour out of space, mid film changes in the way that he talks. Like he just goes on these mad random rants where his accent changes and his voice changes, and then goes back to talking normally again which I just thought was bizarre. And I thought that can't be by design. That can't be intentional because no. this film doesn't have the, the, the intelligence and the capability to try and do what color out of space did in terms of like, you know, portray a message. So just, I can't just can't understand why he did it. Just was bizarre. It was just bad acting, wasn't it? Mm. I think that's the only way you can say it. Okay. So obviously the two questions first up, did you enjoy this film? Stu? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> I was bored, bored more than anything else, and there was just like we've already said, just nonsense. No, mm. no, it didn't at all. Matt, in the binary, yes or no, it would be a no because it wasn't an overall enjoyable experience. So no, unfortunately not. Mm. I mean, it's a no from me as well, Ash. No one's going to be surprised to hear. <laughs> like this is the second to actually the third time I've actually watched this film, uh, but on the second watch through, I watched it on double speed just to make the notes, mm-hmm. and it still fucking dragged. Like, <laughs> well, it was half the it? time of what it should have been, and it was still too long. Mm. I don't think I'm over exaggerating when I say this is one of the worst experiences, one of the worst film experiences that we've had making this podcast. At least with Jiu-Jitsu and Left Behind, I'm not going to forget that I've seen them. They've left a, a mark, albeit a bad one. <laughs> Whereas I've already forgotten this film once, and I've forgotten most of it already for a second time. It's just a stinker. Mm. You know what the, the worst thing about it, when you say that, I was um, when I was explaining what we were talking about tonight to someone earlier, I forgot the name of the film. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you mean, yeah. <laughs> How can that even happen? I've got it, and I've got it wrote down on my phone for note reasons and everything, but I forgot the name of the film that we're talking about. It was that there. It's just so forgettable, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, if, if Jiu-Jitsu and Left Behind is Stockholm Syndrome, because we keep talking and thinking about it, this film is definitely Alzheimer's. Because it's just, <laughs> it, it's just very, very forgettable. There's your clip. Mm. There's your yeah. clip. <laughs> 
<laughs> so in this film, in this film alone, is Saint Nicholas good or is he bad? Stu, good or bad? Well, he'd never work again, would he, if this was all he'd done? I mean, he's, <laughs> it's, it, he could have been anyone. It could have been mm. anyone playing that role. The, the role was awful anyway. But like Matt said, him fluctuating between mental and normal and different accents and just just bad, just very bad. Mm. Yeah, I've got it down as being bad. I agree. I think the character is very poorly written, but I feel that his acting is all over the place. He's somehow going from being a great guy to a bad guy to a good guy again but his tone is just one note throughout. It's not befitting the story or the character. I, th- I thought it was really poor in this, to be honest. Matt, yep. what do you think? Clean sweep, echo exactly what you say. Doesn't do anything to to wow, doesn't do anything that, you know, how many times actually have we, has it gone one one all the way? Bad film, good cage. Bad, bad cage, good film. Do you know what I mean? It, it's not very often that the two hand go hand in hand, but... Bad, bad film, bad cage, unfortunately, on this occasion. Mm, yeah, definitely. So at least that one's in the books and we don't have to uh, revisit the town of paradise anytime soon. Until next year. So, you can do that one. <laughs> <your own show. laughs> I mean, that's the thing. By, by next Christmas, I would have forgot about it and it'll be like a new experience again. So, <laughs> Yeah, you'll be telling us in the group chat, I've just seen this film trapped in paradise. <laughs> so anyway, let's go and raise Arizona. <clears throat> Hey, I'd like you to meet Gail and Evel Snopes. My pair has ever broken in her. <laughs> Boys, here's my wife. Well, Miss Bunny. Kind of. Late for visitors, isn't that high? Oh, well, yeah, honey. But these boys just got out of the joint. So we gotta show a little hospitality. Well, now, H.I. Looks like you've been up to the devil's business. Hey, is that a him or her? It's a little boy. Got a name, does he? Uh, so far, we've just been using Junior. We call him Junior. <laughs> you mean, you mean J.R. just like TV show? <laughs> That's good. Welcome home, son. Where's he been? Phoenix. Uh, he was uh, visiting his grandparents. They're separated. Oh, would that be your folks, ma'am? No, I'm afraid not. Well, I thought you said your folks was dead, H.I. Well, we thought Junior should see their final resting place. Well, why don't you boys have a seat? <laughs> It's two in the morning. What's that smell? We don't always smell this way, Miss McDonough. I was just explaining to your better half here that when we were tunneling out, we happened to hit the main sewer line dumb like that. And we followed that to... You mean you busted out of jail? The film starts off immediately with a meet-cute between H.I. or Hi, as he goes by. That's Nick Cage's character. And Ed, played by Holly Hunter. Ed is taking the lineup shots of H.I. and there is an entire courtship that seems to take place in a jail once every 18 to 24 months. The first time was a flirt. The second time, Ed tells H.I. that her, I like this, her fiance, not, not fiance, fiance, <laughs> has left her. The third time, H.I. proposes. 
H.I. then goes straight and he and Ed try for a baby. She's barren, but they see that a local wealthy company owner and his wife have just given birth to five. Ed and Hi decide to kidnap one of the quintuplets as it's not fair that someone should have so much and they don't even have a single one. I thought this was a really nice, amusing opening. It was really playful. It was really light. It sets the film up lovely, telling us that it's going to be a little bit silly, but mainly a fun film. Mm -hmm. However, at 12 minutes, it is a little bit too long and there is a massive monologue that just goes over the whole thing. I mean, it's taken up nearly 20% of the film's runtime just with that monologue at the beginning. So on one hand, I thought brilliant. On the other hand, I thought uh, maybe you could have done something a little bit better with it. Um, I, yeah, I, I liked that we know straight away what to expect from the, these characters, almost from the off. And I'm glad that, and then we'll go on to it, whilst they're hillbilly yokels, they don't play on stupidity as their driving force whilst they're you know what i mean they're not they're not they're not cletus the flat jawed yokel you know what i mean they're they're, <laughs> yeah. they're i liked that and i like i liked how they, they set the scene albeit quite long it, it, way to do it but and i'll come on to this later on when we talk about the film overall what i really enjoyed was that even in the first few minutes it, it managed to intertwine silliness slapstick with a plot points that really hit home for me about not being able to have kids and stuff like that. And I thought they did it really well throughout the whole film. They'll, they'll, they'll mix the silly and heartwarming really well. And they did it really well in the opening as well. Mm. Stu, what were your initial thoughts? Fucking loved it. <laughs> I thought he was superb. Because <laughs> it had been, like what we said a couple of weeks ago, that it was a long, long time ago when I watched this film. Um, yeah. So I, but at the same time, as soon as it started, I remembered it all again. Mm-hmm. And I've only seen it once. And it was in the, um, I've mentioned it before, the early days of DVD, so 2000, um, 2001, when I just bought shitloads of films that, I'd, <laughs> that I hadn't seen for either my favourite films or ones that I'd seen once or whatever. Or, oh, mm-hmm. this has been recommended, I'll buy this. Um, so I ended up with crates and crates of them, they're all in the loft now, because who cares? <laughs> but because who buys DVDs? Exactly, yeah. Scott. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it was just the memories just flooded back, and I thought, even from the first from the first mini, even just it, it's almost like an extended version of My Name Is Earl. <laughs> and it, <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, and I love that series, and I love this mm. film as well. And it, I had the complete opposite. I could have sat through two hours of just that kind of monologue style. Mm. I have a complete opposite reaction to you that I, I didn't think it was long enough because I was I was thoroughly enjoying myself because I thought well what ridiculous situation can happen next but in a different way to what trapped again I forgot the name of the fucking film again <laughs> <laughs> well the opposite of trapped in paradise where things just made no sense in this even though it was ridiculous it did have heart and it, mm. it was something that you can mm. think yeah this is possible until yeah. certain things started happening. But yeah, I, the monologue, I absolutely loved it. Just on the note of um, My Name is Earl, if you like that series, I fully recommend a show that was called Raising Hope uh, that is made by the same guy who made My Name is Earl and Jason Lee appears in that on the odd occasion as well. Really good sitcom. It has a very similar sort of heartwarming feel to it. Lovely. 
After weighing up which of the children he wants to take, H.I. decides that he cannot take a kid. When he gets back to bed, she cusses him out and tells him to go back and get one. She is fully flipped at this point. She obviously starts off as a police officer and now she's just full on crook. She's that obsessed with having a baby. I've realised at this point it's, it's quite difficult to discuss comedy in these terms. Like you have to give it a certain... Like if it works, comedy is great and it's so easy to talk about. But like when you look at something like Trapped in Paradise, talking about comedy is so hard. Because if it, if a dramatic film is shit, it's quite funny. If a comedy is shit, it's not funny. It's the exact opposite. So like the rules change. Luckily, this one I liked, and because I watched this second, I was comparing it to Trapped in Paradise throughout. Yeah, I think it's it's what I always say. Comedy is the hardest thing to get right, and mm. because how the something that looks good on paper can just turn out to be a bag of wank, and. Mm. Like we like we've just seen, and there's things in the in if you compare the two again, where you look at that the premise of that film and some of the things that go on in it, and you think that should be should be hilarious, but it just doesn't work, and it's almost like the the comedic special sauce, which no one really understands what it is. You just either have it or you don't, and in this they have it in in bucket loads. Yeah, and like whenever you see a comedic actor it seems to be easier for them to transition into dramatic roles than it does for people you associate with dramatic roles to go into comedy. Mm. It doesn't, it, I don't know, I don't know why, but it just seems to work better that way for me. It's funny actually though that you speak about it because whilst this is a comedy film for me, I didn't enjoy it for for the comedic things about it. Mm. Probably one for the end really, but um, it, I, I think I think the comedy elements to it was a bonus because it was so good and like everything like even from like what they can do in 90 minutes with it was good. But I think because, because for me it didn't stand out as a comedy, it didn't have the expectations that trapped in paradise had to have because Mm. that's all it had going for. It was trying to be funny because there was nothing else to it. Whereas this had a lot going for it. And the fact that it was funny as well, you know, was, it was an added bonus for me. Cherry on the top. Mm. I think for me, it was, ostensibly a Coen Brothers film. Yeah. Like it was just recognisable as Coen Brothers. Mm-hmm. And and that was why you get the comedy out of it without it being outright mm-hmm. st- stupid comedy. Like. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that was a big thing. Uh, we cut to an external shot of HO's prison, hammering down with rain and the ground beneath starts to become disturbed as John Goodman explodes from beneath. I had to double check the date this was released because I was like, there is no way on earth that Shawshank Redemption <laughs> wasn't influenced by this. Like Goodman's character even says that uh, he and the other dude, um, Evel, they hit a sewage pipe whilst tunnelling out. I'm not, they've got to have taken that from this. There's, there's no way that they've both come up with the same gag. <laughs> I assumed I assumed that this was, was after Shawshank. I didn't even think about it from a date point of view. Was this prior to Shawshank, was it? Yeah, this was oh 87. Oh, my God, that's unbelievable. Yeah, I think Shawshank was 94. Yeah, it been, yeah, yeah, of course it yeah. would have been, yeah. Might oh be a little God. bit earlier than that, but yeah, it, this was definitely before. Uh, on our last picture pod, when we were discussing um, Emma Thompson, I'd, I'd said that Emma Thompson is one of those actors who immediately makes me want to watch a film. John Goodman's another one of those. 
I don't know what it is about him, but just seeing him on screen just instantly makes me happy. Mm. He's just got this aura about him. He's just got that big grin that makes you feel warm and, and want to be involved in it. And it might be because going way back, I used to love Roseanne. I remember Friday nights on Channel 4, it would be Cheers followed by Roseanne. And I loved it. So anything with John Goodman, it's my uh, my cup of tea. Yeah. It's, the John, it's the John Candy effect, eh? It's big, jolly old man, big big guy, always got a smile on his face. It's, it's, one of, it's almost like you, you can feel protected. You can have a hug off him. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't cause you harm. Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely it. If you get chance, Kevin Smith's book, um, Tough Shit, he talks about working with John Goodman. I'm sure it's in that book. And it's such a wholesome, lovely story. You just can't help but put a smile on your face. He talks about the first time that he makes John Goodman laugh. And he said it's the best feeling I've ever had in my life. And I, I can fully appreciate that because he's just got that big grin mm. that just seems so inviting. So, yeah, that's a good book anyway, um, Tough Shit. I'm sure it's called Tough Shit anyway, but yeah, check that one out. Having escaped from prison, Gail, that's John Goodman's character, and Evil go to see H.I. in order to hide out. Against Ed's wishes, they stay the night. H.I. goes to sleep that night and he dreams about a biker, a real mean demon who can control the devil himself. I fully thought this was going to be fucking yeah. Ghost Rider. <laughs> <laughs> The day after, H.I.'s boss, Glenn, comes round with his wife. H.I.'s boss was an ass, telling racist jokes and talking shit. The boss seemed like a bit of a know-it-all asshole. And Ed just lapped it up. She loved the being there with this, this other couple who she deemed to be high class compared to H.I.'s friends who were from prison. But, like, I, I don't know, I, I really liked this... That the contrast between Ed trying to be something she's not, whereas HI is trying to battle who he is inside. Uh, there's just this duality in their character. I just really enjoyed that. I thought it was really well done. Mm, I liked I liked the internal struggle that he's you get between him. Like already straight away, you see that this life potentially isn't for him. Mm. Um, and why would it be with the like the shitty children that plagues Nick Cage's performances? That are like there's this. Is, you know, the kids throwing things around, wrecking the house, everything else. And like, he's been expected to do all these things. And like, like life wasn't exactly what he thought it was going to be in within like a few days. And I think mm. they, they did, they did really, they did really well with that to show like his, um, his dismay at what was going on. I thought it was quite like subtly, but nicely done. Yeah. No, mm. I've, I've been in that kind of situation as well with other people's kids around. And you just know that they're a bunch of cunts. And you, if if they, if they were your own, you you put them in your chain to the wall for behaving like that. But it was it was very um, like you said, it hitting home. It was one of the things where you, you've all everyone's been in that situation where other people's kids who can do no wrong or they're just laughing off and they're destroying everything you've got. Mm. And I just thought, oh, he's gonna snap. He's gonna snap. But something's gonna go wrong. <laughs> but yeah, that they're. Um, the guy, I mean, the guy deserved his slap. <laughs> yes. So Glenn, the boss, uh, he proposes to High that he and his wife, uh, oh, sorry, that they swap wives because apparently they're swingers. I don't think that they were actually swingers. I think Glenn just hates his wife. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what it was, but their relationship just didn't click with me i thought he really hates her but she's pretty so that's the only reason he's with her because he thinks it's a status symbol 
<laughs> so again, I just really liked the interplay with the characters. I thought it was great. But yeah, he uh, he asks them to to swing, and Hyde just punches him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> when uh, when they're on their way back from this this day out with this other couple, Hyde decides to hold up a convenience store. He can no longer hold the beast at bay from within. Ed sees him doing this, and she takes off. I loved this next scene. So the chase scene where mm-hmm. they're being chased by cops. <laughs> you got the cop car just roaring down the road, chasing high. He's they're wildly firing bullets, like hanging out of the car, just <laughs> randomly shooting. They run through someone's garden, which causes this dog to start chasing them. And every time we see the dog, there's like there's the one dog, and then there's three dogs, and then there's a whole pack of dogs, just more and more building up this building to this crescendo where they're running around in this other supermarket. And it's just so illogical, all played out to these dueling banjos music. <laughs> it was just pure Coen Brothers madness. I loved it. I thought it was excellently done. Yeah. The I mean, the, the, the dogs thing was... I ain't noticed that at first. That I thought, oh, there's there's one chasing one. And it, it was like the third time the cutter. I thought, oh, yeah, they're, they're multiplying. <laughs> but yeah, the, I mean, the stuff in the supermarket, I mean, I always... There was tears coming down my face at that point, especially where you, you got him the um when the <laughs> the one get cop gets hit by the trolley. It's it's just mm. it's just very silly, eh? but it, <laughs> in what you said comic timing, it worked perfectly. Every single piece of it. It did. It all hit home wonderfully, I thought. Yeah, it, it had enough like Americana about it and subtlety about it that it it it's part of my good in this, in the good, bad, and crazy, this that scene because it was so well put together, and it just, I, I know I enjoyed it because Natural Born Killers, one of my probably my second favorite film of all time, talks its whole thing is about Americana and critiquing Americana, and mm. um, it felt exactly the same as this scene, so it must be influenced by it in that it's crazy, there's guns flying, like coppers are just firing off guns with no, like. Um, no regard for like the rest of the public. There's got shop owners that are trying to shoot him, and there's absolute chaos. But and it, it just felt like that. It just it was just it had no place in this film. In that it didn't feel at that point like this kind of film. But it, it just fits so perfectly. It was it was it was outstanding. That the whole chase scene was really really well put together and, and a massive highlight for me of just like how chaotic their lives are and it just seemed so normal for him <laughs> to be happening and and, and it, it didn't seem like it was like a anything out of the ordinary and that it was panicking it was just a normal behavior and i think they just did really well with it really enjoyed it and the, the fact that he's actual the, the actual thing he went to steal was nappies at this time yeah. and not money <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then you got the bit where the uh, the car swings back around and he, he, he leans out the car to pull them up off the floor like, it was just superb the next day, the man from H.I.'s dream, the Ghost Rider, he offers the baby's father a proposition. He will return his son for $50,000. When the dad refuses, Ghost Rider decides to get the baby and sell it on the black market instead. <laughs> <laughs> Simultaneously, Glenn stops by and he tells Hyde that he's fired and that he knows that the baby is the kidnapped child. Gail and Evel overhear this conversation and they decide to kidnap the baby. But they leave the baby at the scene of a bank robbery <laughs> that they had just pulled. So now we have the baby's real family. We have H.I. and Ed, the Ghost Rider, Gail and Evel, all racing to find the baby. Again, just more Coen Brothers capers. Just brilliant. 
After managing to get the baby back from Gale and fighting against the Ghost Rider, H.I. and Ed decide to return the baby. They're not fit for parenthood. Whilst returning the child, they get caught by the baby's dad. I love this scene. Like, they were talking about love, life, marriage, future, past. Like, it was really uplifting and heartwarming, I thought, the conversation with the, the, the baby's father and, and the couple who mm. were at their wits' end about to give it all in and just give up. And they were talking to someone who's obviously been there and done that. I thought this was really well done, really well acted, really sweet. Yeah, and completely, completely almost... In this kind of film, very out of place, which you don't expect. But like Matt said, mm. that's probably why it does work because it is a film first and then a comedy second. Mm. Yeah, I think so. That makes uh, makes good sense. Yeah, <clears throat> I I found that this scene difficult in a way. Not difficult. I didn't enjoy it, but like I don't know, bore bore people or whatever. But like me and my wife are going through uh, like a fertility thing at the minute. We're like two and a half years into trying now and. And it, it hit home for for a comedy, and I was like, "Oh, I don't like this. This is making me feel sad." <laughs> uh, and and just I was a bit like, "This is part of the film that I thought this is the substance." Now we've we've got the delicious we've got the delicious meat, but this is the sauce now. This is the extra bit that raises this film up even more. It's got it's got all the style and, and all the comedy and and all of the and the slapstick and everything else and. But then it had this at the end as well, which I just, it really, it really like, I, I described the film as bittersweet in a way because it's like, it's sad. It was sad. It was sad at the end mm. of the day. This this family that actually would have given that child everything that they possibly could have within their means, just know that they're not good enough or it's not the right thing to do, even though they probably would have done everything that they physically possibly could have done for that child. And it was sad. It made me sad. And I was a bit like, it just brought the film up another level in terms of like its mm. its substance. I thought it was really really nicely done. I mean, you, you went from you went from blowing the ghost rider to pieces <laughs> after after comparing. I mean, what was that that that, that bird tattoo um, that they both had to what, three or four minutes later? When when you, you got babies on roofs of cars and being left in the middle of the road and being chucked around and dogs and to go to this. I mean, it is, I mean, again, it shouldn't work, but it does. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Loved it. So what you're saying, Matt, is next time we have a cage fighting night out, we're going to go kidnap a baby, yeah? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, a okay. a bald-bearded bald bearded baby to fit in with the... Um, <laughs> the aesthetic the, the, of the, cage. The, the rules of entry for cage fighting, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We get another dream sequence, a hopeful and positive ending. Maybe it doesn't happen, but... Maybe, hopefully, it does. I loved it. It was great. The budget was an estimated $6 million. The box office was $29 million. Fantastic. That's a really good return on like quite a small investment. And it thoroughly deserved it, I thought. It surprises me that, because that doesn't, that doesn't... It doesn't feel like a film that would attract the masses to go to the cinema to watch it, if that makes any sense. It doesn't, mm-hmm. It it's not a blockbuster feel. It's not, at the time, got a blockbuster cast. It's not, do you know what I mean? Like, and it surprises yeah. me that it's done so well. I suppose it's the, 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 the benefit of like word of mouth and everything else, I guess. But Yeah, it is. Um, it's the quality that's obviously mm-hmm. shown through and brought people there. And really, that's what cinema should be. It shouldn't be going just because it's the big film this week. It should be because it's a bloody good film that it, it deserves the money. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's, that's what you end up with shit like bloody Pirates of the Caribbean doing a billion dollars and it's yeah, dog come shit. On. Yeah, come on. Um, <laughs> no, I was going to say for for late 80s as well, for that kind of return, you are going to have to, have, like you just said, rely on word of mouth because <laughs> pre-internet days, no real, I mean, you've got newspaper, local newspapers, I suppose, not really nationals, especially in America. And, mm. I mean, is that... Is that global box office? Because I'm guessing that it wouldn't have been one that travelled very well. Initially. Possibly not. It's um, not that I time believe either. It's, it's the one that's on Wikipedia. So yeah, so you think, who knows? You think it would be, but I mean, it, it's one of those things where when I've mentioned that we were doing this, everyone you speak to has seen it. Absolutely loves it. Everyone. Mm. Yeah. No one's got a bad word to yeah. say about it. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and to that end, IMDb. It's got a seven point three. The meta score was a 68, which I thought was a little bit low. Uh, but on Rotten Tomatoes, the audience score is 85%, but the critic score is a 91%. Mm. So, like, it, it is loved. It, it genuinely is. <clears throat> on Amazon, there are some reviews, <laughs> some <laughs> negative ones. Natasha McRae, she gave it one star in February 2020 because, and I'm quoting here, too much swearing. <laughs> <laughs> Becker's house, she says that she was recommended this film as a great movie to watch. I don't call it great at all. N Cage is much better now that he's older and has less hair. Three stars. <laughs> <laughs> and N Tucson gave it a one star review saying tedious, unfunny, crass. It's none of those things. No, I wouldn't say so. I mean, simply, there is. Like, you could maybe argue it's not, it's unfunny because it's not, as Matt said, it's not a comedy first. But it's not tedious and it's sure as shit not crass. So the critical response, obviously, it's, as we said, 91%. So Tim Brayton from Alternate Ending, as well made as any other indie film from the late 90s and frequently hilarious on top of it. Richard Corliss from Time Magazine. To their old fascination with Sunbelt pathology, to the sidewinding steadicam to and pristine command of screen space. The Coens have added a robust humour, a plot that keeps outwitting expectations and a dollop of sympathy for their forlorn kidnappers. It's almost poetic, that is. Mm, really nice to put together, that. Uh, Nick Rogers from The Film Yap. In their first masterpiece, the Coens first delighted with sheer kinetics, then dazzled with colourful colloquialisms and verbal voodoo, and eventually disarm you with the grace and guile through which they examine modern foibles, failures and forgiveness. I think they're just... that That's the perfect way to summarise this film. Mm. Like, very well done. So the good, the bad and the crazy. Matt, you can kick us off with this one. So I mentioned already the good, the, the, the chase scene initially I thought was fantastically put together and it, it had all of... It, it, it was so close to the extreme end of Over the Top so so nearly like too much, but you just did that line perfectly. Where it was really really well put together. Um, the the bad, the only the only parts of the film I didn't really enjoy, and not even didn't enjoy, just wasn't at the same level as the rest of it. Was was the fight scenes with the Ghost Rider? It, mm-hmm. it felt a touch out of place. It felt like a touch, almost too Tarantino maybe mm. just felt a little out of place apart from the fact that i did I, like scoff when he holds the ring it was like that being leon when he says this is for matilda 
and like the grenade <laughs> and the grenade goes off. But you know, I'm 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 nitpicking for the sake of it because I'm, I need to to find something to talk about. Um, yeah. The crazy, the fact that it's it's eighty seven, and he says I think um, the, the 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 real the biological dad says um, when they're talking about what pajamas he's got, and he's like, oh, he's got Yoda on them. And I was like, this film maybe budget looks terrible in comparison to like Star Wars in 77. I know we've had like remasters of Star Wars now. Um, and I just thought, oh my God, these are this, they, these films like 10 years apart. But they, it, it, do, it didn't transfer great. The copy I sourced didn't look fantastic. <laughs> didn't look fantastic. And I just thought, I can't believe these films are like 10 years apart. It looks, it felt older than that. Not by design, just by like the quality of uh, maybe of the budget. But um yeah, I just uh, really, really enjoyable film. Really, really enjoyed it. Excellent. To the point about the fight with the Ghost Rider, that actually leads into my good. So, like, this is the second film by the Coen Brothers. I've not seen Blood Simple. It's one of the few Coen Brothers no, films I yeah. haven't actually seen yet. But I think you can see the traits that the Coen Brothers have taken on into their mm-hmm. their other films. You like, they are definitely auteurs as directors. Aren't they excellent? And I felt very much you could see Anton Chigurh, you could see the evolution from from this film to No Country for Old Men. Yeah, yeah. So like I, I fully got that, and I loved it for it. That was one of my goods. My bad, I did feel that Holly Hunter could have been fleshed out a little bit better. Mm. Like she goes from being a police officer having it all together to just being almost borderline personality disorder, or because she wants a baby. Mm. Like. She just goes properly insane, and I know it's a comedy, but I didn't think she was a well-written character. My crazy, <clears throat> so apparently this is one of Edgar Wright's favourite films, and I think you can see the Coen brothers' work in his influencing him. So I get that, but the real crazy. This is my favourite fact I've ever heard on any film that we've done. So the dream sequence right at the very end. The kid who catches the football, who was wearing mm. the number one jersey, he was shot and killed in a road rage accident at the age of 23. After this happened, all of his college friends got together to try and help. They created a personal safety device that became the taser. <laughs> like, so in a roundabout wage, Nick Cage is saving lives. Oh my God, that's crazy. I, I thought that was excellent. Like, just this horrible incident happened and something. Something good comes out of it, something yeah. to try and help people. I thought that was brilliant. So, oh, Stu, what's your good, bad and crazy, please? Did you follow that? <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> I know when you, when you said that you had the best one of all time for this, but that's that's incredible. And the, the good, it was it was a thoroughly enjoyable hour and a half, which in, in the last six months, not many people have had, have they? And you could put this on, and this could cure lockdown for everyone. It's just in. I absolutely adore this film. <laughs> and mm. I can't believe it's been so long between the two times of watching it that it has been over 20 years, give or take. Yeah. And it's as good now as it was the first time of watching it. And there was things like that, like Matt said about the Yoda, where this was very, I mean, Yoda, Yoda pajamas, which is what, only four or five years after um, Turn of the Jedi. And you think it, Mm-hmm. Surely, would Star Wars have died down by that point? With no kind of, yeah, because he didn't really come back to the nineties. When you listen to podcasts of old people older than us, he didn't come back till the um, 
the re- the special editions and stuff like that. So it's very niche. I mean, I, I like the fact that, and like Matt said about the Americana, about the setting that it's a setting that we're all, we've all kind of got used to now. Since mm. I mean, maybe it was influenced by this. I don't know, but we're used to that kind of. I mean, it's very much like Trevor in GTA Five, and that that mm. kind of like stupid hillbillies, and but they are, but they've got heart as well. I mean, yeah. you can't see anyone anyone in this film going storming the Capitol building in Washington. And that wouldn't happen, <laughs> would it? <laughs> but these these are all decent people, however messed up they are. So that was the good for me. I mean, the bad. It's again, it's nitpicking, but like you just said, Andy, about Holly Hunter, it's she's just there for the sake of being there because she needed to be. I mean, mm. maybe you could have added an extra ten minutes and gone into. I mean, her backstory, I suppose, have been flitted between cop and outlaw. That could have been a bit funnier, but again, you you trying things just to fulfil the category because there really isn't nothing there, um, and the crazy just. Well, just the whole thing, just how everyone nails it. Everyone nails it, and that's very rare in a comedy for everyone to nail the performances. Now I've just just called her out for it, but that's not her fault. Her performance was great. It's just her, her character wasn't great, but yeah, everyone everyone's performance in this film was superb. Yeah, they, they were all pitch perfect. I thought, even like John Goodman having such a small role and. The other guy who plays Evel, who I can't remember, they're not on it for masses of screen time, but when they're on it, they're just brilliant. You genuinely love their characters. I thought, like even the the minor characters, I thought were just perfectly pitched. It was really, really well done. Yeah, I mean, if it was released now, them two would have their own spin off series. Yeah, mm. hands down. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so we'll move on to our two questions. First up, did you enjoy this film, Stu? Kick us off. Hundred percent. Absolutely brilliant. It's this is going to be this is going to be tickling the top five when we uh, when they do that again. Mm, yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I think um, definitely it's. I, I, what can you say about it that we haven't said? I just think it, it's really well done. I think obviously I know the Coen brothers have gone on to do bigger and better work, but I don't think that you get to be the Coen brothers without having done Raising Arizona. Like this is a very strong part of their back catalogue. And I also don't think you go on to become Nick Cage without having this in your locker either. Mm. Like, they set him up to do some really good stuff. I, I don't know, we've seen, like, a few films of Cage's prior to this, but this feels like this could have been Cage's break into the mainstream. Yeah. I wouldn't have been old enough to particularly remember it at this point, so I don't know, but this feels like this could have been a monumental shift for him. Mm. So, yeah, I, I massively enjoyed it. Matt? Yeah, exactly the same. I think on my next viewing, which won't be very far away, I'll enjoy it for the more comedic effects because I enjoyed it more for its soft underbelly. Like it's mm. it's it, it, it's sympathetic story and and some of its themes I probably like took more of in this viewing. Um, and that's the sign of a great film is it's a, it can be a different film every time you watch it. You get you get you know different things from it. Um, and ultimately another sign of a great film. I've already told everybody that I can to watch it as soon as they can. Yeah. And I've got great yes, things I to know. say. And it's yeah. one, if that's not the, you know, that that's the yardstick really of what a film that has impacted you and touched you in that you just want everybody else to, you know, drive conversation about it. So yeah, loved it. Hmm. I'll tell you what it's done for me. It's really made me want to sit down and go through all the Coen Brothers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly the same. I, I went through all on IMDb and screen grabbed everything. 
that I could find mm. again. Yeah, absolutely. I just, I mean, I've always been a fan of their work anyway, but I'm not proper in the mood to sit down and watch them again now. So the other question in this film and this film alone, was he good? Was he bad? Matt? Yeah, excellent. Um, I don't think he was he, he stand out in the, um, you know, this film, if it was cast as anybody else, it never would have been any as, you know, it wouldn't have been as good. I, I think he did it. He had a great performance and he treaded the line, like I said earlier, of yokel, but not stupid yokel, not, mm-hmm. not slack George yokel. Did that really well. Um, without almost breaking his expression in his face at all. He told so many stories, which was an amazing like feat because like his expression doesn't change nearly through the whole of the film, <laughs> no. but like, mm-hmm. but he, but he does get across all these different emotions really well. So I think he did, I think he did a great job. Um, certainly up there in both film and performance in terms of a top five. Um, it will take some, take some knocking off in terms of a comedy, at least for the, for that, you know, that position. Mm, yeah. Stu, what about yourself? Good or bad? Pretty much the same. I mean, there was, like you just said, he's how he, <laughs> keeping it. I mean, I'd, I'd love to see if there was any outtakes from this because keeping a straight face <laughs> in some of them <laughs> scenes and just playing it absolute deadpan like that is just, just superb. But yeah, don't break character once, was not all over the place like that nonsense earlier. And yeah, absolutely wonderful. Top class, so yeah, he's a brilliant actor. Yeah, I, I thought he was excellent. Like, I, I genuinely don't understand why Cage hasn't worked with the Cohen since because they do go back to like the same few people every now mm. and again. So I, I'm surprised that we haven't seen him in more of their work, to be honest. But I thought the script was perfect for Cage. So, like, this podcast was obviously born out of the fact that there's this duality within Nick Cage that he's both the greatest and the worst actor who's <laughs> ever lived. <laughs> And I thought this character was very much that. He was a lowly crook with an almost biblical verbiage. He was a family man who also needed to be alone. He was a character of duality. Mm. And I, I thought he was he, he played it to perfection, I thought. He was really, really good. Yeah. I, I think I'd really like to be able to pinpoint on a timeline where Nick Cade goes from art to from art to box office. So what film did he go from pumping out things like this? And I dare say Valley Girl. I didn't enjoy it particularly well, but, you know, it's a completely different, you know, like role to anything like Face Off or, 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 or The Rock or anything like that. Just at what point his stock changed to A-list film, uh, A-list movie star than a film actor. Do you know what I mean? At what point that changed? Mm. And then when it changed back again to kick ass and a few other things that he did, I'd love to like be able to timeline that and see like where where the where his stock changed. I think it was face off. You know, obviously being it does what, feel like it, yeah. I mean, what were we bit 10, 10, 11 at the time? And that was really the first time I'd heard of Nicolas Cage mm. when that came out. And I don't know how I managed to see it at that time. There's been some some shenanigans with the uh, the old video man down the pub. But, <laughs> yeah, that was the, that was the first time for me. But obviously, we're only what what closing in on our forties here, <laughs> not older than that. So yeah, I think. But I think when, when we get to the the uh, the decline part, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna know it because yeah, oh, that's cool. if it's any anything worse than earlier, then God help us. Oh. 
I think there's going to be some. There's a couple of films I know we've got to come, which are real shockers, really bad shit. In there. <laughs> which I mean, I don't even know if we need to watch Deadfall because yes, it's not do. in it massively, but it's so bad that I'm I'm tempted to make you pay watch it because I've already seen it. If you, <laughs> I think that's enough of a reason. If you have to suffer, we have to suffer. Exactly. But when you look through his back catalogue, most of his stuff is hitting like between six and eight up until you get to the mid nineties ish. Um looking at it, it's probably gonna be Traps in Paradise might be the last everything up to Traps in Paradise looks a little bit indie-ish. Mm-hmm. And then from that point on we've got Leaving Las Vegas where he wins the Oscar and then we go Leaving Las Vegas, The Rock, Con Air, Face Off. And then he has this real high period of getting some some decent meaty rolls, and then it just drops off a cliff. Once we get to two thousand and six, the Wicker Man. <laughs> <laughs> I hope Captain Corelli's mandolin wasn't the catalyst that started his downward trajectory. Because the longer the time goes on, the more I pine to watch it again. I don't oh know yeah, why, I... <laughs> I'm, I'm, so, there was nothing. There's nothing bad about that film apart from his accent. It's really sweet. <laughs> mm. I disagree. Uh, agree. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's uh, us done for another week. Thank you very much for joining us once again. Make sure you've got us on the Twitter, at CageFightingPod. Uh, we've got our question cast up next time. So any emails to cagefightingpod at gmail.com or you can DM us or you can even send us a tweet with any questions that you may have. Uh, our next lot of films are going to be comedy based as well so to be honest if you want to send us something funny go right ahead Uh, make sure that you've got us subscribed on your podcatcher so you don't miss a single episode and whilst you're there if you could leave us a five star review if you like what we do as it would really really help us out and we would thoroughly appreciate it so for this week, Matt, would you like to say goodbye? Take it easy, guys. Look after yourself in 2021. Stay in contact with each other. Get back doing your lockdown quizzes and everything else that you used to do that you thought, I'm going to stop doing this now because it's all going to be over soon because I'm no, I, I am no Tory apologist or anything like that. <laughs> but if we can get through the next few months and it will all start to get better. So just hunker down, try and look after yourselves and... We'll try and keep you entertained as much as we can. Stu, would you like to say goodbye? And there's almost a, a perfect quote that sums up the uh, the mood of the world at the minute that came from this film. That's, I'd rather light a candle than curse your darkness. Oh, so, very nice. Goodbye. How can I even find <laughs> that? <laughs> yeah, like the guys have said, look, take care of yourself. We're there if you need us. Love ya and be good. See ya. These days a lot of comedy is just a question of you get some capable director to point the camera at funny people who improvise and then in the edit they cobble together some piece of shit which is kind of funny but if you forget the next day. Um, that, I'm talking about my films. Uh, <laughs> but with Raising Arizona, I, I started to see how the, the, the camera work and the performance style and the writing worked together in such a way that it created a kind of, uh, a much more 3D kind of comedy, whereby you were 
there were there were jokes in the way that the camera moved, and there were jokes in the way that the the way that the camera moved rhymed with itself, like thematically and structurally, and 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 the way that the script repeated a lot of what you see and what I went on to do with Edgar. Um, it's certainly it's Shaun of the Dead, you know, the the the, the you've got red on you. Um, okay, then is is uh, raising Arizona's you've got red on you. The idea of you know sort of um, creating. Uh, cyclical dialogue and, and and rhyming scenes with each other that that all comes from this film you know so if I, so I had had Edgar here now who who would kind of profess to being the person who saw it first or did you see it together in terms of well, um, you know, I'm not it's sure. obviously a film you bonded over it's a film we definitely bonded over this and Dawn of the Dead was our sort of like you know our first formative tentative first dates that we had <laughs> before, fact, before we kissed I've got <laughs> I've got um, here that I started a few years ago and I guess what I'm interested to know is, is whether this list has changed yeah. but you put down as your top films your top five Dawn of the Dead Raising Arizona Annie Hall Taxi Driver and The Empire Strikes Back yeah and Nine Lives with uh, Kevin Spacey is probably number three now yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah no I think those, those are all films that, that had a sort of impact on me on a, on a sort of cellular level you know and, um, and, and affected me as a, a, a would be and eventual filmmaker uh, and um, influenced me enormously and um, and I think that, that that list will probably stay strong forever you know and can you remember when you saw Raising Arizona had you seen Blood Simple which was their previous I hadn't, film no I hadn't I didn't see Blood Simple till later this was my first inclination of the Coen brothers and uh, I was just sort of uh, utterly blown away by it I was kind of, I, I, it was one of those experiences where I, I, afterwards I, I felt a bit out of breath and confused because um it, it genu- genuinely had an effect on me. And um, I'm I just interested, uh, who hasn't seen the film just by show of hands? What the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> there we go, sir. And my dear friend Claire as well, who I bought specially to see it. Uh, no, that's really exciting. I'm very, I'm, I'm very happy to know that because, and of course, why, why, you know, there's, not everyone's seen every film. It's silly to think that they have. But it's nice to know that there'll be a vicarious sense of Enjoy. If I keep turning around and looking at you and seeing if you're laughing and enjoying yourself, don't feel uncomfortable. Uh, Maybe a little uncomfortable. <laughs>